I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our limited edition podcast for Decoded Pride Issue 2. We are super pumped to have you with us, and today we're speaking with a small round table of creators about their creative process, why queer speculative fiction matters so much, and where you can pick up our amazing new anthology. Spoiler, it's at decodedpride.com. your special host, Monica Estrella Negra. Hello. Filmmaker and writer extraordinaire. You've probably seen me on a couple of other episodes with Essie and Sarah, but ha I've taken over. And today, we are actually having a conversation with three of the creatives featured in Decoded Pride issue number two, which will be released this June, this upcoming Pride Month. I'm super excited for today. I'm super excited to talk to these three deeply talented individuals individuals and I'd like to turn it over to have Peter 
introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Peter Volfrong. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am an autistic, transmasculine, bisexual writer and podcaster from Chicago. And I wrote the short story, Two Strong Arms to Defend Myself. Excellent. And how about you, Jeffrey? My name is Jeffrey Brown. My pronouns are they, them. I am a pansexual, queer comic book creator. I am the I'm the creator of Agents of Claw, and it's a story about super spies doing super stuff. I'm I'm Amalia. I wrote Deepest Chinatown. My pronouns are she, her. I too am autistic, and am a mixed race person whose orientations are best described as a Venn diagram. How are all three of you feeling today? Are you super excited to talk about Decoded Pride? I am so excited. I'm I'm so excited. I'm almost speechless. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. All right. So, as you know, Decoded Pride is a compilation of the most amazing queer speculative stories and comics. And we are in our second year. And if you've been following our Patreon at Bitches on Comics or our Instagram, Bitches on Comics, or our Twitter, Bitches on Comics, you know that we've been ranting and raving about this upcoming issue. And so I want to ask, what was your primary reason for submitting a story to our anthology? And I'm going to first hand that over to Peter. I did not really expect, I I really did not expect to get chosen because I figured like hundreds of people would be submitting stuff. And I I guess the main reason that I wrote the story that I wrote was because I wanted to just say that I had written something like I, this is only my second ever short story that I have written outside of like college so, you know, I, I just I just wanted to have written something to say that I was a writer and I have and it's getting published and I could not be happier. You know, as it, time got closer, I figured, yeah, they probably won't choose me. And then they that you did. And I am incredibly grateful for that. And even if I hadn't been chosen, I think I would I would be satisfied with the story that I have written because it's more personal than I expected it to be. And I'm glad that it exists, and uh, I'm very grateful that you accepted it. It was actually um, myself um, that read your story, and I wanted it to be in the anthology. So your story was actually one of my favorites. Oh, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it was. It's very good. His story is Two Strong Arms to Defend," and it is an amazing story. Jeffrey, would you like to? Give us a, a explanation as to why you submitted to Decoded Pride this year. I wanted to submit to Decoded Pride this year was because last year I did the cover for issue one, and I was really excited about it because I was trying to get on the first one before I got accepted for just doing the cover. You know, SC, you know, brought it to my attention. Hey, uh, hey, submissions are open. Um, why don't you make something to submit to? decoded issue too. And I got excited really. And I was trying to find something from my big library of characters that I've made over the years to try to, you know, make it to a new short story that was like four pages. Because I didn't know what the page um, limit was. So I figured, okay, sure, let me challenge myself. Because I almost got burnt out of um, making comics for a while after I did like four mini comics like in 2018, 19 and printed them and all that stuff. And I'd stopped basically doing web comics. So I was trying to find something to get excited for again. And, you know, the 
you know, show for 2020 at least that, you know, I could still at least prove to myself I could still create something, you know, of, at least I can be proud of if, you know, you know, like I said, I was trying to prove something to myself that, you know, I'm, I'm rusty, but my art's still good, my writing's still good, you know, I was trying to, I was just trying to give myself a reason again just to make something and to put it out there and share it with everyone. Yeah, 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 and it's 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 a really great comic. I definitely laughed a lot when I read it. Um, oh, you the like dialogue sense of humor. is amazing. <laughs> I do. Yes, it was is amazing. Thank you, Jeffrey. Um, how about you, Amalia? Well, I submitted, I submitted a couple of stories and got accepted into Decoded Pride Number One, and I liked working with the editor, so I wanted to give it another shot. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really liked your story, too. Her story is called The Deepest Chinatown. We did something very different this time. We actually shared the stories with these three creators in hopes of having them establish dialogue between each other as creatives about their process of creating their stories for Decoded. I'd like to know, what was your first impression with the stories that were shared with you all? And if you don't mind, like, talking about the story that was actually shared with you, whoever wants to go first can go first. Uh, reading Agents of Claw, what really struck me the most, I think, was the use of color. It's got this great eye-popping color scheme. It, it reminds me kind of, uh, I, I, I'm not really sure what the best point of comparison is, but it kind of reminds me of like, it, it does remind me of Saturday morning cartoons, kind of like 80s stuff. I, it reminds me a lot of Gem and the Holograms, both the cartoon and the follow-up comic series. Uh, Jeffrey, who, who would you say was your biggest influence in terms of color palette? Um, for me, it was like Mike Allred, who like did um Madman. I don't know if you've ever read that comic, but he also worked on like a comic from like the two thousands called Ecstatic with Peter Milligan. And I really like how it's very vintage, but at the same time, it's very much modern. So it didn't play like to the like you know how you. Well, I used to read like a lot of Jack Kirby comics and a lot of um eighties Marvel comics like the eighties Spider Man and Chris Claremont's X Men and How to Glennis Oliver. You know, really made these very moody, evocative, but bright colors. And yes, Saturday morning cartoons is another thing, because I watched X-Men cartoon from, like, the 90s, like, you know, like, over and over and over, you know, because I really liked the way everything just popped, and everything was, it wasn't muted, it's like, it was there, and it was unapologetic about, you know, what it was, you know, it's like, well, we're, we're, we are the comics that you're looking at on screen, and then I watched stuff like the Max, it was on MTV and Eon Flux, you know, stuff that had very bright color palettes, but the subject matter was almost like juxtaposed to it. So, you know, it gives you this vibrant mood, you know, it's moody, it's vibrant, and also it's something that, you know, you can't take your eyes off of, and that's the type of stuff that I'm, I'm attracted to, because, I mean, even like old 1960s spy movies like Our Man Flint, or like um, a movie called Modesty Blaze, I watched long, like, not too long ago, like a couple years ago, about this woman who's like a super thief, but she was like working for the British government, and, you know, I'm into that, and then there's a Joe Schumacher Batman movies, which were also another brand of, like, just brightness on screen. I, I also love Mike Allred. His, uh, his FF with, uh, Matt Fraction is one of my favorites. So, so yeah, Mike Allred is a, he's, a, he's great. I mean, I think it was his wife, Laura Allred, who did the colors, but, you know, to me, it's, it's almost all the same, you know, oh, like, oh, yeah. like, to me, it's like they're, like, yeah. a one-two uh, team. And also there's like um Matt Wilson from Wicked and Divine. I like the I like the way he did his colors on that, you know, on Jamie McKelvey's art. And I really liked his art because of the line, you know, the way he inks all the characters. They're almost like Patrick Nigel. It's not quite realistic, but at the same time it's very naturalistic. And I like the way that he draws um clothes and stuff. 
Excellent. Uh, Jeffrey, what story did you have? Two Strong Hands. I read that one, and I like the I like the action in it. I like the um I like the characters. How like I say, nobody, no, no one, two characters were alike, but also I like the way they didn't get along with one another and stuff like that. Correct me if I'm wrong, Peter. <laughs> Uh, no, no, you've got it all right, except that the title is Two Strong Arms to Defend Myself, which is actually a misquote of a Eurythmics lyric. It's actually Two Strong Arms to Protect Myself, and I wish that I had remembered that before I submitted it for publication. Oh, oh wow. You know what? That's really interesting, because you did make a reference to Annie Lennox in that story. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I kind of caught it, but at the same time, I was, I don't know, my, my, my afternoon coffee had kicked in, and it was kind of like... Whoosh. Because <laughs> I was so into like what was going on. In reference to the Soviets, what was the inspiration behind that of like u- utilizing? Is it because of like the Red Scare and like its history with uh, conspiracies and aliens and like that whole like time period? Is that what you were going for? Yeah, having it be set in the 1980s during the Cold War. I, I most of the stuff that I write or the stuff I try to write is mostly period pieces, in large part because it's kind of a comforting thought to me to know that, you know, trans people and autistic people and queer people have always existed, even before the exact language existed to describe ourselves. And, you know, I I want to write stories about, you know, people like me who doing stuff in the past. And in this case, yeah, here is a closeted trans mask teenager having an encounter with the bizarre. One of the things I immediately noticed about Two Strong Arms to Defend Myself was its use of the second person. To me, I associate second person narration with a specific book series, Choose Your Own Adventure. Like, what what inspired you to, well have you as the pronoun of choice in the narration. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for noticing that. I was, yeah, when, when I first wrote this, I was wondering if that would be, like, too cute, but I, I really like how it turned out, and I'm glad that you noticed it. I decided to go with second-person pronouns because I, I'm not super comfortable using first-person pronouns for whatever reason, and since this is a, about a closeted trans person, using third-person pronouns would be slightly awkward, since he himself, the, the narrator, him, the protagonist himself has not yet realized who he is, but he he's on his way. The other short story that I wrote before this that has not been published, has not been submitted for publication anywhere, was also uh, second-person pronouns. And the reason I used it was because I wanted to really, it, it was a story for a class, I was a workshop I was doing on writing terror fiction, and the idea was to put the reader right in what the, the the protagonist was feeling to really make them viscerally experience what the narrator, what was going through the protagonist's head. I mean, I also liked it since, I mean, is this set in the 1980s? Yeah. Okay, well, I like that too, because that really, in my mind, I'm visualizing this like as a short film almost, you know, except like with the club music and all that, and also the espionage and stuff, and, and, and an Annie Lennox track. I really like the arithmetics a lot. I mean, I listen to their music every, every now and then. Um, in my mind, I got that now in my head as I read the story, you know, and the whole, you know, Cold War angle, which also makes me think of those 1980s 
you know, movies. It's, you know, except I like that you make it personal. We're seeing this world through the eyes of your of your protagonist, you know, and how you know how he's um, navigating through this world, and you know going about like his life beforehand but you know at the same time also you know to me it's just he puts you in it doesn't like you're not seeing it from a bird's eye view you're seeing it in first person and you know i mean i was wondering how did you um how did you get to this process exactly with this type of writing i mean it's like but it reminds me of the popes a little bit not exactly but you know more like a, a novel that you might could find say at an old bookstore you know like a cheap paperback <laughs> Thank you. I aspire to be as exciting as a cheap paperback. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I watch a lot of movies made of a lot of cheap paperbacks. Yes. yes. That is a really good aspiration, actually, because to me, those are some of the best like, novels oh, that yeah. you can possibly have. yeah, I mean, you get right have. into it, you know. It's like you, you also don't want the story mm-hmm. to end. You want to see what her next adventure is going to be, you know. Yeah. And uh, speaking of slightly out-of-date technology, uh, Amalia, y- your your short story is about trying to trying to get to a video store to meet people who with similar interests and like what specifically what is it about video stores that attracted your attention well i was the lucky anime nerd back in the early 2000s with access to chinatown and that inspired the story because i was lucky and had the access but i'm married to somebody who didn't and we trade stories sometimes. Awesome. In what way uh, does that nostalgia um, feed into your creative aesthetic, do you think? Like with uh, being like a black like anime nerd and even like now today where like black anime nerds are getting a bit more visibility in that respect because of like I think about like Megan the Stallion and like her crunchy role like thing and like it's no longer becoming something that's hidden you know what I mean like there have been vis- hyper visibility of black people embracing uh, different subcultural interests so how does that feed into your creativity a lot of my short stories carry the theme of is it alright to use profanity here oh completely <laughs> yes Fuck you guys, we're not a monolith. There you go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amazing. Totally. Totally. That is definitely one of the things because I'm also a filmmaker and I dabble in horror and science fiction. And I think that it's completely absurd that it's taken so long just to have a slew of content that like features black people that are just not side pieces or getting murdered immediately. Like, you know, like the whole adage, like black people get murdered first and like horror and things like that. So to actually have like a centering like narrative around a black protagonist that is something that we've never seen within mainstream media is just like completely completely amazing and I'm really excited for younger generations of queer black kids that are just weird and have these interests where they can actually be safe and that's what I felt with Deepest Chinatown in that regard and I think it's very well written Um, your story is amazing and I'm really happy that it's a part of the anthology still on the subject of Deepest Chinatown I I really liked the casual use of magic in it Mm, like it's not like a huge deal it's just like yes there is a house spirit here you can summon them with baking and they will tell you how to get to a they will tell you how to get to a special video store and i think about like just like casual magic that happens every day in our lives um which is very like real in my opinion not to get all wooey on everybody but 
Yeah. Jeffrey, were you about to say uh, something? Yes, I was going to say it reminded me of an episode, I think, of the 80s Twilight Zone about a lost and found emporium. How, you know, people come to this place to look for something, and that's the vibe I got off of um, the Chinatown oh. story. And, you know, the black queer nerd myself, you know, I, I, I eat that stuff up because I'm like, it's, it's something you don't see very much of, at least, you know, mm-hmm. in the in mainstream popular fiction, you know, where, you know, we get to go on these weird adventures and, you know, just, you know, at least do something where it doesn't seem like, a, you know, people look at us and go, that's typical, you know, it's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Because I'm kind of almost at a loss for words. It's like, um, it's exciting to me because I get that vibe from that the more I read the story, you know, and I'm glad, I'm glad it's here. I'm glad it exists. You know, it compliments, it compliments all of our stories, you know, put together in this um, anthology. And I have another question for you three. What are some of your, who are some of your favorite queer speculative influences? Uh, for me, um, it's, well, let me see here how the best way to put it is Clive Barker because of his, um, his horror movies like Hellraiser and Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions where, you know, like they're set in the modern day, but there's also like the, you know, it's, talk- it's like talking about sexuality and all that, but it d- does it in such a way that you, you know, you don't think about it. You don't think about it too heavily, but it's just, you know, it ain't like sticking out like a sore thumb. It's there. You see it. You know, you acknowledge it, and it's more additive to whatever scary stories he has in his novels and in his movies. And second, I'd say, would be um, Carta Monior. I don't know if you know who that is. She does like she's a trans woman yeah, who does like mini comics and zines and stuff. And I really like how you know her her work is very personal, and you know she puts a lot of herself in it. And I like the way she draws, where it's not pretty or glamorous; it's very rough looking. And you know that left big um, impression on me because you know I, I talk to her a lot sometimes. And I'm trying to think who else because there's so many. Um, there's Tina Horn who does like a podcast called "Why Are People Into That?" Well, you know sexual fetishes and stuff. And and also, she did a comic called Safe Sex, which I've read cover to cover, volume one, and I, I'm pitching it on the Kickstarter for volume two on that, about a world where, you know, kinks and whatnot are, you know, are outlawed, and there's like this weird theocratical, black I can't even say it, basically like the Puritans have one outlaw anything deemed key kinky and, you know, unclean or whatever, you know. It's, it's about these people who are like underground rebels, basically. <laughs> but, you know, it's done in a very... Like I said, very speculative horror fiction of like, well, this would be a world we would almost wouldn't want to live in. You know, I hope I'm describing that right. But she's she's been a big influence on me, and and then there's also um, Michelle Perez and how the way she writes and her comic called uh, called The Pervert with Remy Bordell. That's another one where it's very personal, and I like the art and how it complements the subject matter and the story she's trying to tell. And you know, she's also you know uh, one of the people I look at and go, I like what you're doing. I want to see more of it. I'm trying to think, I mean, there's so many people I can name off top of my head, you know. Hope I'm not going on and on. Well, let's turn it over to Peter. What about you? Uh, so one of my favorite collections of short stories is The Mary Spinster by Daniel M. Lavery, who is a transmasculine writer and who is maybe one of my favorite writers of all time and also a big inspiration for me that made me realize, oh, hey, I can be trans too. I mean, it, it took me a while to get there, but like that was kind of the beginning of a crack in my eggshell, so to speak. And The, the Mary Spinster is a really terrific collection of it, it, it retells fairy tale fairy and folk tales in ways that it are just really horrifying. He he has this great knack for taking familiar stories and turning them on their head just enough to bring out disturbing subtext in them. Uh, his version of Beauty and the Beast is one of my favorite takes on it, hands down. And uh, his take on Cinderella 
which also kind of blends it with King Lear, is also oh. one of my favorites. Okay. With King Lear. That's interesting. <laughs> I'm like, oh, tragedy plus fairy tale? Hmm. Sounds good. And how about you, Amalia? Who are some of your favorite queer speculative influences? I'm trying to think. There's a bunch of authors I enjoy who are one flavor of queer or another. But it's like, who has influenced me? I have no idea. So I'm just going to list people I enjoy reading or watching. Octavia Butler. If she's influenced any of my work, it would definitely be her novel Kindred. Mm, excellent novel. I also enjoy Steven Universe, so Rebecca Sugar, for sure. I also have a soft spot for Chuck Tingle, Darcy Little Badger, and River Solomon. River River Solomon, yes. Yes, 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 totally. Excellent. So, I mean, so now that you all have read each other's stories, I, I'm really curious to know if you have any other questions for each other in regards to processes, uh, how to exist in this world um, as being a queer creator, especially like with the pandemic and having to promote yourself online and things of that nature, just like general cultural like things that like are specifically tied to who we are as people existing in this time. Uh, Amalia, something, something that I found kind of interesting about your, about a, uh, Paradise Chinatown is that it there were not a lot of gendered signifiers for your protagonist. And I found that really I found that to be really interesting. I wanted to make the protagonist non-binary. However, since I also designed it to be flash fiction, there's not really much room for going out saying, hey, I don't use she or he. So it came out pretty subtle. I, I really did like that. And I mean, I, I sort of did the same thing with uh, Two Strong Arms to Defend Myself, where I, I tried to keep uh, I tried to keep the protagonist gender somewhat subtle to an extent. I, I did try to make it clear that, you know, they were, you know, they wore their, mo- you know, their Sunday best was b- belonged to their mother. And they really his Sunday best belonged to his mother. He himself was a big admirer of Annie Lennox, who, speaking as a trans masculine person myself, Annie Lennox was one of my first, one of my first big, oh, oh, I, I can do that. I would like to do that. Jeffrey, in regards to Agents of Claw, what was your initial, what was your initial idea? Okay, I was trying to think, um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but, you know, queer and black and, um, you know, more outlandish. I mean, I was trying to do something that wasn't, I was inspired a little bit by what Jim Steranko drew, but I figured take it in my own direction to make it my own. Like, um, also I was watching an episode of X-Men where Wolverine, Sabretooth, and all of them were, you know, in some type of facility and they had to go in there to get something. And I figured, you know, I'd take my own take on that. So, you know, I watched some cartoons a little bit and then I, you know, written down, well, what would it look like if I did it, you know, on paper? paper as opposed to like animation for me that's where that's where the springboard was and then you know i added in like a lion guy and like a balding neckbeard dude it's like my two like guards on duty for like a little bit of comic relief because I, I you know i wanted to be like okay you could take this seriously a little bit but it's still absurd and weird and kind of crazy you know but also 
you know, my main character, Roxy Severin J. I'm, I had her, um, her two partners call her boss. You know, I didn't like give her any, like she, you know, I didn't, I didn't gender her exactly, but they just called her boss because she was the one leading the team. Now, my other two characters I created for that one named Alex, who was like the one-eyed, um, light-skinned non-binary person. The Archer of the group, you know, I wanted that one to be like my proxy for Hawkeye from like the Avengers a little bit because I also was watching the MCU movies. So, so I was inspired by that. To, and I was trying to mix it all together. And the gun-toting guy named Cliff, he's bisexual, but I, you know, I, I kind of written it, written an offhand comment, like, you know, I won't, if I wasn't doing this right now, I hope I get to go home and see my boyfriend or whatever. You know, I was trying to make it, like, you know, most peppering little moments of these characters all got lives when they're not being super spies, you know, trying to go in and out of a facility for some unknown MacGuffin. And their boss, um, Roxy, just drugged him into this, promising, and promising to pay him a lot more money than what they normally get paid and you know i've written their personalities are all like you know like they all get rough around the edges they complain a little bit with one another uh, you know because that's what i like for marvel comics so i was trying to you know pretend that i was writing and drawing a, Mar a marvel comic you know except you know done in my style and the place they were running around in was like a jack kirby inspired like weird 440 cadmus lab and they run across other type of creatures and death traps and all that and you know, I was, try I was trying to make it fun, like if this was like an animated 15-minute cartoon on Adult Swim or MTV oddities like back in like the 90s, this is what would be on it, you know? It'd be like something that wouldn't be like your typical image comic. If I ever got published an image, that's kind of what I'm going for, for something that's not what you expect. And, you know, it's fun to look at, it's fun to get into the character some. And my character, Alex, says, you know what, you should be paying me extra for this. If not, I'd be right, I'd be at home right now, still in bed. So, you know, it's all a matter of, like, them having needs and wants beyond just the job of just doing good or whatever. And the thing their boss, Roxy, steals is, like, a cosmic mixtape, which I thought was kind of funny, because I was trying to do a play on, like, the Infinity Gems, or, you know, the uh, the Infinity um Stones that they're called in MCU. So I was trying to do something where it's a cosmic mixtape. <laughs> or what they're gonna do with it, we don't know to the next story, maybe. Or they're gonna collect more of these weird little outdated but very cosmically powerly charged um, artifacts. So it's almost more like a spoof of like the, the Marvel stuff and the '60s Stanley and Jack Kirby stuff. But at the same time, I kept it very much like it's in the here and now. I just kept it in a nebulous time period where we don't know. And even her outfits are a little bit kind of retro and kind of not retro, you know, because they got all the, the Rob Liefeld um pocket belts, you know, with the pouches and all that, but, you know, they're not drawn like Rob Liefeld characters. Excellent. And so I have a question for all three of you. How difficult is it to navigate the publishing and the literary world as a queer or trans person? Well, uh, I am lucky enough to not have had to do that yet because I have never been published before, and I am kind of scared to try, but I think my plan was always that if I did like start writing seriously, I would try and start outside the system. I have a work in progress that I'd kind of be interested in doing as a web novel. If I can just, you know, find a good website to put it on, I would like to, you know, write it. You know, I'd like to serialize it, release a chapter every month or so and, you know, try and build up a fan base and people react well to it, then the sky's the limit. Yeah, I totally encourage you to do that. DIY is the way to go. And I feel like that's something that sustained our communities for so long. So that's a really cool idea, Peter. I really hope that you embark on that. My best work, I feel like I put out the work I make myself. Like at first, when I just made my webcomic, I just would draw a page a day because I you know, I got myself my own website off of WordPress and the domain name and all that stuff. I was very prolific in the beginning of my career going back 
to 08, 09, 010. I just, you know, draw a page, put it out, and, you know, see what happens, see if anybody is reading it, looking at it, or whatever, discussing it, you know. I just try to just throw stuff out there and see if anybody, if anybody notices, and, you know, if they notice it enough, then maybe they'll buy, like, my PDF versions that I have on Gumroad and stuff like that. I mean, I try to submit to being an artist over at Dark Horse, but, you know, they never answered me back. I, I tried to do something for Heavy Metal, but the submission times on that's just too... I mean, Heavy Metal Magazine, the submission time on that's just, like, a long time, and they got other artists to do. They, they work with more than just up-and-comers, and think about doing an Image Comics thing one time, but I think at the time, I got discouraged, so I just stopped it doing that, and I just, you know, if I, had to, I had to shrink down and go smaller, smaller DIY, because my art, even though my, I know my art looks good, but I know other people might look at my art and, you know, might think, well, we can't, you're not going to draw, I'm not going to draw Spider-Man anytime soon, or I'm not going to draw any of the DC characters or whatever, and I was doing fan art and all of that stuff, because this one person I, I was going to work with said that my artwork, my artwork was hit or miss, and it kind of put me in a bit of a funk for a while, where I, you know, about lost my will to draw and you know I had to work through a lot of that just regaining my confidence because with this person up here all they read is DC and Marvel all the time and knowing that they're expecting me to draw like that I, I know I'm not I know that that's not where my creative interests lie and how do I want to present my work to the world I want to be authentic and even this type of stories I want to tell yeah I want to have black queer characters in like you know action roles and you know being competent and good at their job and even you know drawing them goofing around and what now you know they, you know I, I want to draw them to be as capable as all the characters I at least in Marvel, if nowhere else, you know. I mean, I think about animation, but I'm having my doubts on that. I'm, 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 I'm very up and down about whether if I do make some animated, should I put it on YouTube? Should I not? Because of the way the YouTube algorithm is, and I mean, for every good person on YouTube that you know that actually you know isn't mean to people, you get those other people who just like to talk shit. And I'd rather not deal with those type of people. I'm even skeptical about you know doing like um you know um, live stream drawings because you know I'm not sure if I have an audience for that or not. You won't know until you try. Right, right? that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I'm I mean I've been reading up on how to do animation. It's just I don't know. I like comics too, and I kind of don't want to put all my time into one and neglect the other. I like to try to do both. Amalia. Well, I like to, I read a lot, and I'm at the intersection of many different marginalizations, which has a result of my work confusing people. When I first tried shopping my novel out to agents, they're like, since I couldn't pigeonhole my work, it was very hard for, it was difficult for them to be interested or consider it marketable. And some of the more out there responses to my short stories, I hold close to my heart because it's nice seeing people's reactions to things that would, things that should be horrifying, such as, why on earth would you make your characters POC? It doesn't add anything to the story. Yes, that was a critique. Wow, I can't believe that. That's ridiculous. I'm so sorry. Not surprised, but sorry. As such, I feel better when I submit my work to places specifically for marginalized people, Mm -hmm. because... I think I'm less likely to get grief, or if I do, they try to be more careful with what they say. What do you mean? Or, or like, in regards to, like, critiques, like, they, you don't have to worry about, like, the outliers coming to troll you or anything of that nature. Is, is that what you mean? This is a different short story. I've heard such things as, we are not familiar with this type of marginalization, comma, but whereas a more mainstream publication was like, 
this sort of discrimination doesn't exist anymore, even though it was my lived experience. Oh, interesting. Glad to know that they're the authority about what has actually happened to you. Yeah, that I'm sorry. That's that's just absolutely ridiculous. But it is like a factor, right? So like, if there weren't any marginalized publication like companies, like where would we find the space for our stories? Right? Right. So Peter mentioned doing like your own self-publishing online or Jeffrey taking the route of like, you know, building a persona online or something of that nature. So in the end, do you think that the way that we can actually make sure that our stories get out to our community is by utilizing DIY methods? Do you think that's the only way that we can actually start to change things? Or do you think that there is hope on the horizon for more inclusive publishing? It. It helps. I don't consider it the only way, but I definitely consider it a stepping stone. I'm trying to think of the right metaphor. I like that it's there. Not everyone, not everyone can make it into mainstream publications because there's just so many people plus gatekeepers making it harder. Mm, uh-huh. So I yep. like having options. Excellent. I'm fascinated by Jeffrey's use of color. Because of of mainstream American comics, I've been primed that primary colors used together equal one thing, and secondary colors used together equal another, but here it's like, both color types are happily together. Is there any particular reason for this? I figured, you know, I want to subvert expectations. Like if you're just reading this cold and say, oh, no, that, that black super super spy woman, she, she might be crooked. It's like, oh, why, why are they stealing stuff? <laughs> why did like, like, why did Roxy hit that, um, that, that line guy, that neckbeard guy in the face with her extended claw thing, you know? Yeah, I was trying to do it just to, just to kind of be like, I was just trying to do something different. I was trying to surprise myself and hopefully surprise the readers who, who, who are going to read my story. And I like for the background, you know, background want to be like like um, almost like um, vaporware colors, you know, like with the pastel, like purples and yellows, because I wanted to have this very um, Italian Mario Brava feel to the visuals, like in this movie, um, Danger Diabolic. I was trying to go for that, where it's it, it's not exactly mimicking reality at all. It's almost very dreamlike. All right, y'all. So we are actually done today. But first, I would like for each of you to tell us where we can find you. Uh, That could be either on social media. Remind us of the title of your story within the anthology. And maybe you can tell us what song you would totally listen to if it were the pending apocalypse. Totally optional. I just threw that curveball in there. Peter, would you like to go first? I'm Peter Volfrank. You can follow me on Twitter at Peter Volfrank. That's P-E-T-E-R-V-U-L-F-R-A-N-C. I am the author of Two Strong Arms to Defend Myself. And if it was the apocalypse, I would listen to Homo Sapien by Pete Shelley, which is a which is my favorite queer 80s anthem and nice. my favorite song of all time. Excellent. Thank you, Peter. Okay, Jeffrey? well, you can find me on Twitter at Sujigo on at Twitter.com is T-S-U-J-I-G-O. And those anime thing. My websites are the ValkyrieQuartet.com. It's a WordPress site. I have my artwork and stuff on my um, pin tweet on Twitter. That's where you can find all my links for that stuff, like at sujigo6 slash 
Society6.com. Um, I have comics for sale on my Gumroad. Um, it's Jeffrey Brown at Gumroad.com. I mean, I got, I got links for that stuff. And I got a coffee, which I should be probably produce some more work for that. But you can leave a tip if you like. And what song would I listen on the impending apocalypse? Well, Susie Sue's um, Carcass, because it's a really rad song, and I really like Susie Sue and the Banshees. <laughs> well, my story is Deepest Chinatown, and you can find me on Twitter at Amelia Wright. My first name, which you can find spelled on Decoded, and writes, like the verb, one word. As for songs, I would probably be panicking too much to make a good choice. However, anything from the Evangelion soundtrack would be appropriate. Excellent. Well, thank you, you three. I have been so honored to listen to you all ask questions about your own respective stories. And dear listeners, just to remind you, this is Monica Estrella Negra, and this is Bitches on Comics. If you'd like to pick up a copy of Decoded Pride issue number two, you can head over to Decoded Pride. Dot com to secure your subscription. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter underneath the same handle, Bitches on Comics, and also to follow us on Patreon at Bitches on Comics. You should also give Queer Spec, which is the name for our publishing company, a follow on Twitter and on Instagram. All right, so with that, we are signing off. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.